1: Of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy, there is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and hopshead. Cheers! Episode 154 of that One Time on Tour is brought to you by the Two Week Notice podcast. So you love Travis, and you love Piebald. Did you know that Piebald's tour manager, merch guy, and cowbell player has a podcast? The Two Week Notice podcast started in 2019 as a travel log while the host, Dana Bullen, was on a solo journey across Europe. Since then, the Two Week Notice podcast has evolved into a show where Dana B. has had guests such as Chris Caraba of Dashboard Confessional, All of the Piebald Guys, Tucker Rule of Thursday, Jack O'Shea of Bayside, Vinnie Caruana of The Movie Life, and many more. Over the next couple months, the Two Week Notice podcast will feature musicians such as Chris DeMakes of Less Than Jake, yours truly, Chris Swinney, Jake Brennan of the Disgraceland podcast, contestants from the reality show alone, as well as many more musicians and stand-up comedians. So make sure to check out the Two Week Notice podcast on all streaming platforms and make sure to subscribe so that you can catch every weekly episode. If you would like to, you can follow Dana and the two week notice podcast on Instagram at Dana B. That is D A N A F U G G E N B. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, tag team jane child meredith brooks looking glass sean mullins Eiffel 65 emf crash test dummies crazy town chumbawamba we have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week so pass the dutchy make sure you're connected and subscribe to one hit thunder wherever you get your pods
2: hello this is travis from piebald and you are listening to that one time on tour
0: The road, cause it's going on and on We'll be driving through the darkest night Until the break of dawn We'll be heading for the cities Another show for us to play To get back in the bed tomorrow We'll do it, we'll do it all again
1: Hey everybody out there in podcast land what is going on as always this is Chris Swinney and I am your host for that one time on tour if this is your first time joining me this is my podcast where I get to sit down with somebody in or around the entertainment industry and have a stellar yes I said stellar conversation so uh, I hope you guys are doing well out there staying safe and healthy we talk about the pandemic almost every week, but I I feel like from everything I've seen on the news, the numbers are going down. I think we're trending in the right direction. I hope everybody out there is getting their vaccines if you can, and uh, if you can't, just you know, socially distance and masks and all that good stuff. I I drove to my mother's the other day, which she lives a couple towns over from me, and there's a gas station. And on the little sign out front where they normally put, like, the specials or whatever, it said, Remember Social Dist. And I I almost took a picture because you should remember Social Distortion because they're an amazing band. I highly doubt that anybody in that town probably knows who Social Distortion is, but I thought it was funny. If it's still up next time I go over there, I'm going to grab a picture and put it up on the socials, and you guys can laugh at it as much as I did. But uh, no more talk about the pandemic. Let's talk about what's going on on the program today. It's a good one. I got to sit down and have a chat. Well, I was sitting down. He was standing up. I got to have a chat with Mr. Travis Shettle from the awesome band Piebald. Uh, I've been such a big fan of Piebald for so many years, and it was great to have Travis on the show. Piebald has always been like such a positive, fun band. Like I don't listen to a lot of fun music. I listen to a lot of like sappy minor key singer-songwriter stuff and then aggressive like skate punk and and a little bit of pop punk but even the pop punk has some minor key type stuff but Piebald even though they have some of that they just always seem to be like such a positive fun just energetic just I don't know it's almost like kind of reminded me of Van Halen not musically but like their attitude like Van Halen's kind of like party metal <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So when I, whenever I think about Piebald, I'd, I would always think about yeah, just like fun and and just just having a great time. And, and the couple times that I saw them live, they they didn't disappoint. They were amazing. And uh, today on the show, we talk a lot about the history of the band. You know how they kind of went on hiatus and then got back together. We talk about you know converting their diesel engine in their tourmobile to run on vegetable oil. And uh, how they had to kind of go on a scavenger hunt every night to find vegetable oil. And, you know, how things kind of changed for the band when their song American Hearts took off. We talked about all kinds of cool stuff. We even talk a lot about the food scene in Travis's current home of New Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana. I think I kind of brought that up because uh, I used to live fairly close to New Orleans. And, uh, yeah, I love Nutria, which is like the big water rat that you can get in a lot of the restaurants there and you know crawfish and beignets and just new orleans has such a good food scene and we talk a lot about that uh it's a great chat and i think you're really gonna dig it but as always before i get into my conversation with travis i do need to pay some bills very excited about this week's sponsor uh for the for the episode the two week notice podcast dana who actually connected me with Travis so he would come on the show. Dana is a really cool guy and he's got this amazing podcast called the Two Week Notice Podcast. You can check it out on all of the podcast catchers or you can follow Dana and the podcast at Dana B. That is D-A-N-A-F-U-G-G-E-N-B. So thank you so much, Dana, for the hookup with Piebald and for sponsoring this episode. It's really cool of you, man. I appreciate it. Next up, we have PartsCasterConcierge.com. My buddy, Gary, he's a killer dude. He makes some killer products. He builds guitars. He does all kinds of cool stuff. He needs to build one for you. The one that he built for me is amazing. I played all the clean stuff on the, uh, on the new Fire Sale release with the guitar that Gary built. It's pretty awesome, so check it out. PartsCasterConcierge.com. Speaking of Fire Sale... The label that's releasing our record, Spam dot Spam.rocks, not Spam, Spam. They have a music festival. They do artwork for bands like Fall Out Boy and Paramore and No Effects and all these crazy bands. They have a record label, as I just mentioned. It's amazing. You got to check it out. SBAM.rocks. rocks permanence tattoo gallery downtown anderson indiana you gotta check it out it's where i get tattooed my wife just got a killer tattoo there the other day you gotta go there if you're in the area check them out on the socials at permanence tattoo gallery and last but not least the yummy yummy food of green chef yes i am uh i am a meal kit convert i love it i can't get through a week without my meal kits now my my keto meal kits Uh, And Green Chef is a great sponsor, and they want to help this show out, and I want to help you guys by checking out Green Chef, and by using my promo code, you get $90 off and free shipping, so all you have to do is go to greenchef.com forward slash 90-T-O-T-O-T, greenchef.com forward slash 90-T-O-T-O-T, $90 off and free shipping. It's killer. You got to do it. Meal kits are all the rage. You're going to love it. If you have a band or a company and you would like to sponsor an episode and help this train keep rolling down the track, you got to get a hold of me. You can DM me on the socials at TOTOT podcast, or you can email me. T-O-T-O-T podcast at gmail.com. I do have some really good spots coming up. I had a couple bands that kind of flaked out because uh, their, their songs weren't quite ready to go yet. So uh, I'll be offering some discounts. If you guys want to jump on the promo train, hit me up and we'll make it happen. We have a Patreon. I haven't done much over there lately, but there are some amazing people that are still on the, the, the ride over there. So you can check that out. It's patreon.com forward slash T-O-T-O-T podcast If you want to make a one-time donation, you can hit up my personal Venmo that is at Christopher Swinney, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-S-W-I-N-N-E-Y. The easiest way to support is to subscribe, rate, and review, or just tell a buddy about the show. This show has been growing like crazy, and I love all of you out there, and thank you so much. If you've told a friend or if you've shared something on social media, it's a... it really works. That's the best way. Word of mouth for podcasts is a big deal. So if you like the show, tell somebody and maybe they'll like the show as well. We just set up a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, I'm not sure, a Discord server, which is really cool. It's like our own little social network. Uh, there's some people on there and we talk back and forth once in a while. It's been kind of dead lately. I've been super busy, but I'm going to try to get the Discord going a little bit better. If you want to join the Discord server, it's totally free. Just head on over to TOTOTpodcast.com. There's a link at the top of the homepage, and uh, you can can join up, and it'll be a lot of fun. So I would like to give a shout-out, as always, to our art director, Sarah, over at Road Dog Supply. Make sure to follow her on Instagram and Facebook, at Road Dog Supply. Sarah's doing some really cool stuff for uh, my new band fire sale. We got some, uh, some really cool shirts and hoodies and stuff that are cooked up for the pre-sale, which will go live soon. I will have the dates very, very soon. If you're interested in that, but shout out to Sarah. Thank you so much for all the hard work and segments. Yeah, I don't really have a segment today. I, I've been super, super busy. I set up a pool yesterday for my kids and it was supposed to take 10 minutes and it took about seven hours because I'm, no, I guess I'm not one of those kind of dads. I I read the instructions and I messed it up and my wife had to help me, but we got it taken care of. So I didn't have time to like prepare a segment today, but I do want to let you know that we were coming up in a couple weeks on the three year anniversary of the podcast. And if you guys are listeners of the podcast for a while you know that every year on the anniversary I kind of do like a, an AMA like I asked me anything and ask Chris episode uh, the first year anniversary my wife was my co-host I might try to see if she can do this with me again a lot of you out there liked her and, and, and thought that she was a good co-host but uh, then the second year it was just me all by my lonesome but this year it might be my wife or it might be a friend of mine that might co-host. I don't know. I'm trying to do it. But we won't have a guest on that episode because I want to highlight you guys. So if you want to send the, – the voicemails are the best thing ever because I can play your voicemails and then I can answer your question directly after I play your voicemail. But you can also email me. You can shoot me a DM, whatever you want to do. If you want to call the hotline, that's the preferred way. And the number for that is area code 765 765- 372-8818 765-372-8818 Ask any question you want and you might make it on the show. I want I want to highlight the listeners. So ask some good questions and I'll get you on the show. So that's it. No segment today, I just wanted to let you know that the Ask Chris 3 year anniversary episode is coming up. I would love to get some cool questions from everybody out there and uh, I'd like to Play your voicemail on the good old podcast. So that's it for the intro, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to give you what you came for. You came to hear me talk to Mr. Travis Shettle from Piebald, and you're going to get it right now. So here we go. And I'm on the line with Travis from Piebald. What's going on today, man?
2: Not much. Happy Easter. Yeah. That's your thing. Here we are. (laughs) Um, hello. Good Good afternoon. Um, yeah, I'm doing all right. Hanging in there.
1: Yeah, you uh, You look like you're outside uh, before we started. Everybody knows there's a fake intro, so we, we talked a little bit before this. Uh, you said you're in southern Louisiana today for Easter, right?
2: I am. Yeah, my girlfriend Carrie, her family is from here, so we came down to visit her dad and her, let's see, her brother's here with their kids, and then her dad has a step Uh, or her mom now, I should say Carrie's father has remarried. So then her side has family. So we're all kind of gathering out here in this, one of the, uh, one of the relatives yards and it is vast. I'll tell you what.
1: (laughs) Well, I tell you, man, I spent some time living in Gulf shores, Alabama down on the Gulf coast. And I spent a lot of time in new Orleans, which I know is kind of where you reside now. Is that a huge difference from growing up on the East coast?
2: Yeah, it's definitely different, um, but I feel like just touring and having been somebody who's traveled around the country a lot, I guess when you see it a few times and then it becomes a little bit more normal, it's really not that weird, but I feel like L.A. is weirder than both places, and I lived there for almost 14 years or something, so um, it's it's different, but I wouldn't say weird, but certainly... Boston to Los Angeles to here, those are all three different culture centers and just that the vibe is different, people are different, the weather is different, cult stuff, food is different. So it's it has been sort of like a change of culture over my life, interestingly, I suppose.
1: Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the food because New Orleans and Louisiana as a whole is known for its food. Have you like found any new favorites since you've been down there? Like I was always into the crawfish beignets. Oh, yes. Whenever I would go, you know, to to New Orleans, you have to get the beignets. Like, what's your favorite stuff down there?
2: Uh, now it's crawfish. Crawfish season has deeply impacted my life. It's like three or four months in the spring where you get crawfish. And it what it reminds me of is the kind of blue crabs that i grew up eating in delaware or they were from off in delaware the chesapeake bay even though my grandparents were, pe- were from pennsylvania it reminds me of that sort of seasoning but it's more like the lobster of new england but a tiny lobster so I, crawfish though has been something that when you find somebody who's doing a good boil you 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 find it you you'll go religiously it's awesome i i love that it's a season too you get like Four months of crawfish and it's over, and then you have to wait till the following year. Uh, it's cool. I, I appreciate that about it. Plus, I love communal eating like that, where you are—you have to work on the food, and so it's more of a social event. And I really I appreciate that about crawfish.
1: Have you had the chance since you live there to try nutria yet?
2: No, I haven't eaten a nutria yet. <laughs> I I'm sure I I could find my way to eating one, but yeah. I don't really want to. <laughs> I would I guess if someone's like, Hey, I made this nutria dish, you should eat it. But it's basically like a big water rat kind yeah, of. Yeah, it is. That's what it seems like. So I'm not I'm not really I don't know. I also know that they're like ravaging this land, so people are supposed to just shoot and kill them, which I get why people would therefore then be like, Oh well we might as well try eating them, right? Yeah. But I don't I'm not that interested. I'll stick to like The gumbos and the things that are kind of more
1: uh, real meats, I suppose I should say. I don't know. Well, I'll I'll tell you, man, I I spent a lot of time in South America. And uh, because of Anthony Bourdain, when I was in Peru, I wanted to try guinea pig. They call it cooey or they call it cooey down there. And I tried it and I loved it. So when I was in New Orleans the next time, we were at a restaurant that had Nutria. And I got to say, man, it's. It's better than you're thinking in your head. If they called it something different or you didn't know, you would probably really like it.
2: Okay. Yeah. Then maybe I'll have to try it. Maybe I'll have to try it.
1: I know there's some places that have like Nutria beef jerky too in in Louisiana. I
2: was going to say, it's not something, even though it's something that is really only down here, it's not something found on like every restaurant's menu. Yeah. You know, it's still kind of specialized in that sense but yeah i have i have not eaten nutria so maybe i need to try it maybe i need to try it
1: I've, I've just always been a pretty adventuresome eater like uh when we were on tour when i was with the ataris we we're in south africa we went to a restaurant they had monkey burgers <laughs> and you were like i gotta try it i was like and it was not very good and i don't know if it was because of what they put on it or because of the meat itself but yeah i've always and i mean i'm i'm pretty much a carnivore i've had a lot of vegetarians and vegans on the program as you can probably imagine yeah. And uh, I don't normally get to talk a lot about that stuff with them, so I'm I'm glad that you're open to talking about all this weird food stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: food food's awesome. It's a it's such an interesting thing, and I love that it changes from place to place because obviously you're gonna eat what's closer to you, or at least our forefathers would have, you know, like yeah. historically. Now you get go to a supermarket, and who knows where this stuff's coming from? But it's interesting that New Orleans has come up with so many. Food dishes, like it's it's curated a number of foods that are specifically from New Orleans, which is pretty cool. There, it's not like nobody ever says that about, I don't know, Indianapolis.
1: <laughs> that's that's about where I live. I live an hour north of Indianapolis. There is not a lot. <laughs> the only stuff that we have here that people talk about is we have the giant breaded tenderloins.
2: Oh, that sounds good to me right now. I'm excited yeah. about it already.
1: When I lived down south, I couldn't find them anywhere. And then every time I would come back home, I would have one. And now that I'm here, I never eat it because it's just everywhere.
2: <laughs> is it like a like a fried steak type, type thing? It is.
1: It's like they take the tenderloin and then they pound it until it's super, super thin. And then they like double or triple fry it. And it's, I mean, it's literally the size of your head, but the bun is normal size.
2: Right. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. That sounds... Pretty tasty. Okay, <laughs> it's it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh,
1: we'll stop talking about food. I do want to talk about. I do want to talk about the band. Um, okay. I've, I, I've I've been following you guys for a very long time. I know that you guys formed the band around 1994 in Massachusetts. I was always wondering. You know, we don't have to go super in depth, but. I always thought you guys had kind of your own unique thing going on, but you would play with a lot of these bands that maybe had a similar sound. What were some of those early influences that got you writing songs?
0: Uh,
2: well, definitely Converge, and in, in, in particular, Kurt Blue. He, he's the guitar player at Converge. But he kind of, when we were in high school, um, for lack of a better way of saying this, he kind of like took us under his wing as younger musicians who, uh, I don't know, We're figuring out our musical styles and he'd be like, yeah, okay, so I I do Converge and that's cool, but I also want to start this side project. Travis, you want to play bass in it? And I'd be like, yeah, of course, absolutely. And then the same thing would happen with Aaron. And I think that not only led us to meet other people, but Kurt certainly taught us, I don't know, a lot of things I think in the beginning stages of us learning about our instruments and playing music. And he certainly converged in Kurt and then also cave in. Uh, they were a band that definitely, I feel like we grew up alongside of, <clears throat> but we also, they also certainly inspired us. We were always proud when they succeeded. Uh, we had a great friendship. We played their first show.
1: You guys did a split with them too, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Year, I mean, that was probably 95. Uh, or maybe 96, but yeah, we did a split seven inch with them. Um, but yeah, they've always been friends, but those, those two bands and groups of people in the beginning of us playing music were wonderful friends. And uh, there was something magical going on for sure around that time with all of us. And we had a really good community of people. We knew we'd all go to the hardcore punk shows. We knew we'd meet up. We knew we'd, be playing shows together. It was just, there was a great community. We knew we'd support the touring bands coming through or try to book the shows ourselves. You know, I don't know. There was something beautiful happening, which I'm guessing in the mid to late nineties, lots of cities had that. Ours just, that's the one I know of was the Merrimack Valley. Yeah. So
1: Well, I mean, growing up in the Midwest, we we definitely had somewhat of a music scene, a punk hardcore scene, metal scene. But I just always Mm -hmm. used to hear all the stories about the East Coast, you know, the New Jersey house shows and and the stuff going on around Boston. And I just I was always jealous because even though we had shows and kids were going out and I felt like we had this community, I would, you know, pre-internet, I would hear these stories from bands that were touring through about how great the East Coast was. And I just always wish I would have been born out there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a lot of pride for being from Massachusetts in New England and, and growing, living in Boston. And it's, uh, I feel like mostly because of the awesome musical, like kind of history that it has. And um, so, yeah, I can understand your jealousy because I'm like, I hold that, and it wasn't my choice yeah even choose where I grew up it was just you know I grew up in the burbs of Boston and where do you go after you get out of high school if you're a curious teenager you're like well I'm not gonna go to New York yet that's maybe a little bit too big for me but I'm definitely going straight to Boston and that's what I think a lot of people did so uh, yeah those early early years and I would say Converge and and the people around that Merrimack Valley scene and those late high school days for me, that was just a magical time. I feel like there's so much cool, inspiring music happening. And I know it's also, we're just not 18 anymore. So yeah. we can't hear things like we did then. We're not going to see things the same way. So you can't relive those moments, but I'm glad that I think you and I alike probably have many of those that you can look back to and be like, that was a pretty pivotal or influential musical moment for me, you know? So
1: when you were starting to, you know, learn your instruments, kind of get into music, maybe before you found the community and got into hardcore and punk, were there anything that was more like top 40 kind of stuff that was influencing you?
2: I certainly think top 40 music was influenced me. And that was definitely before you get into punk. Cause then you sort of write off, the top 40 music, once you hit that age, you're like, oh, I get it. This is fake. What I'm listening to is this is real. So I don't want to partake in that anymore. But I totally remember, you know, the Sunday top 40s with Casey Kasem. And I remember taking piano lessons when I was a kid. And my piano teacher, Mrs. Schmidt, she was really nice. And she'd be like, what songs do you want to learn? And what songs does like a 6 through 12-year-old know? Pop songs. Yeah. So I would learn like... good thing by fine young cannibals and when it's love by van hagar and other such top 40 crap songs which you know looking back on it they're they're they're, they could be worse but uh top 40 music certainly infiltrated my life at an early age. Music was always something I was like, this is magical. I don't fully understand it. It floats in your ear and it can make you feel things. I don't, this is magic. And then when you found out that there was other stuff that was beyond the realm of radio that you were hearing, that was when it got even more magical because that's when it's more like, oh my God, not everybody knows about this. It's special. It's only for me and my friends. No one else is even gonna like it anyway. Like (laughs) There was something beautiful about it. So,
1: so I want to talk a little bit about you know the band gets going in 1997. You guys recorded "When Life Hands You Lemons," and uh, you did you did that at Salad Days? Did you do that with Brian?
2: We sure did. Yeah, it was when he. I think the studio at that time was in Brighton, uh, Mass. I might be wrong. It may have been somewhere in Cambridge, but it was in this kind of weird warehousey spot, and it was a pretty small room. But yeah, we I think we hacked it out in the winter and like. 4 or 5 days it was really fast but yeah that was I remember Brian uh definitely recorded that and he also recorded the Rock Revolution EP.
1: Brian's a good friend of the show and I've just always loved his his production stuff. Was that kind of I mean I know you guys had done things before that but was that like maybe your first taste of working with someone that was actually going to maybe give you some some pointers or whatever or had you done that in the past?
2: I I don't know I feel looking back on it I I mean I feel like Brian probably put in his two two cents here and there editorially and he was obviously a couple of years older than us had been in well-known hardcore bands especially Ashes we all thought Ashes was dope but uh I don't remember him being like Oh, I think you guys should do it this way, or I think this and I'm sure he had his input. I remember that kind of stuff a lot more with Paul Coldry, where he was like, Hey, I'm gonna come to your practices and sit there and think about the songs while you play them, and then we're gonna talk about it afterwards. And we we're like, What? Okay, <laughs> really? You're gonna Okay, cool. Normally you just go into the studio and they're like, These are the songs, this is how they go. Now we have to play them correctly. But with Paul, there was definitely more. Edit notes, or he'd be like, All right, I'm coming back next week to practice. We'll see what you did with the edits. And then he would say he liked them, or he didn't, or this part should go twice as long. Or so he definitely had. I think he was the person I would say that really, when we did Friends, was the one that was like, Let's, these aren't big changes, but they're little ones that I hope will make you like the song better and make the song better in general.
1: it's crazy when you get that first taste of pre-production if you don't really know how, how it works.
2: <laughs> it was wild. I, w- I couldn't believe that here's this guy, Paul Coldry, who has made Pixies records, and he's coming to our practice to listen to the songs before yeah. we start tracking with him. That was unheard of <laughs> to me. It's yeah. not at all, but it was to me.
1: So, so I'd like to know a little bit before we jump forward about your songwriting process. I ask this a lot. It's not a really a songwriting podcast, but I like to find other people's processes of how it works. And, you know, you guys have always, I mean, the songs, whether they they deal with real topics or not, they've always been kind of fun and kind of like, when I think of Piebald, I think of like a good time. You know, I've seen you guys play live a couple of times. It's always a, a pretty uplifting experience. When you're writing the songs, what is your process? Is it jamming everything out together, or are you bringing full songs to the table? How does it work?
2: Um. All right. Let's let me think. Well, there's for me. I feel like there's two things going on that start the song simultaneously. One is like I have to play something on guitar that I like enough to keep playing, and then I'll figure out how to sing over it. But while that's happening, I have a notebook where I'm just writing stuff down. And it might not make sense. It might not be cohesive. But it's random thoughts that were either intriguing or I liked how they sounded. So then, you know, I get, I get a riff going over here. And you need two riffs at least to have a song going. But if I get, like, something I like playing and I can hear, like, that to me sounds like a verse. And this to me sounds like a chorus. What else would a song that has these two parts need? And I'm almost always music first. Yeah. And I don't even care about the vocals until I'm like, can I play the song on guitar and do I like it? And then I'll be like, either record it and sing along or sing along while I'm playing it to get some sort of vocal line and then fit in lyrics. But usually it's two or three riffs. And then I'm like, okay guys now, then I add everybody else and I'm like, here's, Most of a song, or like the meaty parts of a song. What else do we need to do in here, guys? And what edits would you want to make? You know, like, so try to show them before they're really getting involved two thirds of a song, or at least half the idea. Where to me, I can hear a finished thing, even though I don't know how it's exactly going to come out. But I bet they sometimes think I'm crazy and it doesn't (laughs) sound like a finished thing at all. But that's usually how it starts. I'll bring a riff or two to everyone and then we kind of flesh it out together but i will have brought the starting blocks you know
1: so what what is your like with music theory and stuff the one thing i've always liked about Piebald is there's some like time signature changes in the songs and there's some kind of oddball stuff in there that if you're a music geek like i am you pick up on it really quickly and it's like intriguing if you're just a normal listener you probably just think it's a song and it sounds good Are you trained at all in that kind of stuff or is that just kind of happy accidents?
2: It's a lot of happy accidents, but again, I'm going to blame or thank Kurt for that one. He was definitely an instrumental person tying me to my intrigue of weird timings because he was all about it. I remember him being like, this is five, four. And I'd be like five, four. And then after that, he like blew the lid off. Cause then you're like, oh, my God, you hear it in all these songs you didn't really realize had weird timings, and then, you know, then you go listen to something like Braid or Crown Hate Ruin, and you're like, these are a mess of timings. Yeah. And it's all over the board, and it's, but it's still, all those mess of timings is still just weaving its way through a song. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, weird timings are
1: awesome. Well, the thing that I always liked about you guys, not all bands that do that, with the weird timings, what I've noticed in some of the songs that have some weird shifts is that it always comes back or it always resolves. Cause if the math equals what it's supposed to equal at the end of the song, then it kind of makes sense. Right.
2: Yeah. I, I would hope so. <laughs> or like I, I do like when you, when somebody throws together a part that's, I don't know in, in seven we'll say, and then all of a sudden it's in four and you really didn't even notice it was happening, yeah. but there you are. Yeah. And I find that intriguing. I love when people do that. I, I think that's cool because they went above and beyond just thinking of counting to four. You, They, they took more effort to make it intriguing.
1: So uh, I, I want to talk a little bit. You guys, like I said, 1997 did When Life Hands You Lemons. The next record, if it weren't for Venetian blinds, it would be curtains for all of us. That's kind of when you guys got on Big Wheel Recreation in 1999. Can you take me through like the process of signing with Big Wheel? Because that was the first record that I heard from you guys.
2: Yeah, well, we never signed anything. That was probably this part probably part of a major problem. Uh, but yeah, Rama was just a really good friend. And he was like, I want to put out Piebald Records. And we said, heck yeah, you seem to understand our band. Let's do this. So... He put out actually, um, the barely legal all ages, which was when life hands you lemons and sometimes friends fight and earlier seven inches and some live stuff. And, and then Venetian blinds was the next real record that he put out. And I remember doing that with Dean Baltalunis. And where were we recording that? It was definitely somewhere in mass Plymouth, maybe, but, um, yeah. Uh, Ramo was basically a friend and a guy who had a label. And sadly, you know, the friendship no longer exists. And I don't think Big Wheel exists either. But um, that, too, was a magical time in Boston where I remember there was Inatech offices and it had Hydrahead, Big Wheel, Bridge Nine, Matt Pike's Booking Agency, Black and White PR, it, it, you'd just go there in the afternoon and hang out with the Hydrahead dudes and walk downstairs and then go hang out with Rama and Chris from Bridge Nine. It was a magical thing. It really was. But um, yeah, the Rama big wheel thing just sort of was a natural friend progression. And he was also knew a lot of people that we knew and was just part of that community in Boston Jeremiah Freitz from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's
0: Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a
1: TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective, the only podcast you crank up to 11. So I want to I jump forward a little bit. You know, the song that whenever I ask anybody about your band, they say, oh, I've never heard of that band. And then I say, well, you've heard American Hearts. <laughs> And I know yes, you. I know you probably. probably talk about this quite a bit. But uh, when that the single came out, did you guys know that song was special? Because that song, even today, when I listen to it, it still sounds fresh. It's it's my my son's five years old almost, and it's he loves it. He sings the "you're part of it" part the whole time. Did mm-hmm. you guys? Did you guys? Because that record is is amazing. Every song on the record's amazing. But did you know that that was going to be a special thing or no?
2: Ah, uh, well, that was already, too, the second time recording it. So I think we knew that it was the catchiest of the songs from the past that were the most modern, right? Because yeah. we did the rock revolution, and then we sort of disbanded for like a year. And we just didn't do anything. I put out that four-track solo record, and then we got back together, and American Hearts was the song where... It just seemed like it could. We played it a little slow on Rock Revolution, if I remember correctly. It didn't quite have the same same tempo. And then obviously with Paul and Q Division, we knew we were going to make it sound just so much better. And clearly that is absolutely what happened. Um, <clears throat> but I, I don't. I guess we knew it was catchy. Yeah, you know, and catchy enough that we wanted to re-record it. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't think it would maybe have this much resonance. Yeah. But of all of our songs ever, clearly, that is the one that has has resonated. You know, so.
1: So I know I know that it garnered some attention from like MTV. I remember seeing it on there. I heard it on the radio a couple of times. Did, did that change the trajectory like when you guys were on the road did you notice like shows getting bigger like was there a visible like advance for the band when you when that was taken off
2: yeah when it was starting and i feel like the word was spreading i definitely remember touring with let's see it was us and glass jaw and juliana theory and i remember thinking wow I think we were opening the shows too. And I was thinking, damn, people are here for us. And then we came back from that. And this is, uh, that tour ended. And then I think very soon after that, we went out with Hey Mercedes. And I remember we were opening for them, but people left after we played at some shows. And I was like, this is not what I wanted to happen, but it felt awesome. Yeah. Cause I was like, fuck people care about our band this rules it's so cool that this is happening um so it was very flattering and and weird at the same time but uh i do think that was about that time where it was what the middle of 2003 yeah and friends friends was out it was summertime touring was in full swing and we'd already been on tour. Like the minute we stopped recording that record, we started a tour. I remember we left the Q Division parking lot and went on tour from recording friends. So,
0: wow.
2: wasn't we weren't sitting around waiting for anything at that time. But, uh, but yeah, I do think you know radio play and people just talking about American Hearts that album and then we were always on tour. So you knew you were going to be able to see us. So I think all those things helped. And it was a time when truly getting in a van and just going to play shows helped make your band bigger. Yeah. Now I don't think you could really, that's not how you make your band bigger anymore.
1: I've often wondered that because with, you know, gas prices being the way it is, like when I was, 18 19 years old if we made 50 bucks we could get to the next show like i don't i don't even understand how bands do it now i know there's the streaming and everything but to get out there and play before you can actually make enough money to get to the next show i don't know how is that a thing of the past
2: Uh, yeah i don't i don't i uh maybe not entirely because i'm sure there are still the bright-eyed youths who are like yeah all we need is 50 bucks to sleep in the van and put a tank a tank of gas and buy four cups of ramen noodles. Sure. But I, I mean, I don't want to live like that every, I'll live like that some days in life, but I don't want that to be my life anymore. Yeah. You know? Um, so I do think that's again, something that like, sure. If you're a, a, a band from anywhere and you're all dudes or uh, gender is not specific on this. You can be anybody, but like you're all probably living in a house together. You're like, okay, cool. We we all split the rent anyway. I don't know. I'm sure there are there's still people doing that and and able to be like, yeah, we'll do it for fifty bucks a night. We'll figure it out, you know. But uh, we couldn't exist like that. I'm no. I think that anybody with I don't have kids, but everybody else in Pieball does. You you sort of have just a different existence after that I would think you have to not live for yourself you can't be like oh i'm going on tour just because i can go on tour you have to be like no i'm going on tour because i'll make money yeah and and i won't come back empty handed and it's fun but i will make money i won't be losing money by going on this adventure you know and that's how we kind of have to do it at this grown up stage you know
1: well no and, and i totally agree like uh when i was in my early 20s mid 20s whatever it's like, oh yeah, I go on tour 10 months out of the year. But now that I have kids, I have toddlers, yeah. you know, and I'm in my early forties. I have a new music project right now and everybody's saying, are you guys going to tour? And I'm like, well, for a week How? or two, week or two <laughs> here and there, if it's lucrative, like I just, I have right. a job. I, I love making music, but I'm not 20. I'm not going to sleep on floors and eat ramen noodles. You know what I mean?
2: No, it's, it's a different, it's a different time. And I do think that's, uh, our age is yeah. a major player in that. We have a life that has gone beyond just just being in punk bands. Yeah. We're still in punk
1: bands. <laughs> We're still in punk bands, right?
2: <laughs> but there's other things that have risen to be equally, if not more important, and that is okay. Yeah, Something I've had to come to grips with, but it's true.
1: So, you know, with the success of American Hearts, Did that lead you guys to the attention of Side One Dummy? Because in 2003, that label was blowing the fuck up, man. Was that kind of what got you guys in front of them?
2: No, not at all. Uh, They, we had a, we didn't know what to do after our split up with uh, Big Wheel and we were recording demos and stuff. And our buddy Isaac knew the Side One Dummy guys and he put us in touch with them. And then they were, uh, they were were interested and I we hadn't had that much other discussions except with majors who so it was a little bit scary for us, a little bit out of our league I think, so we went with Side One um, and, but yeah, it was basically our friend Isaac who put us in touch because we didn't, I don't even think we'd heard of the band we'd heard of like Flogging Molly and some of the bands on the label, but i but you're right that was a time where they seemed to be getting bigger with what they had I'm trying to think i mean flogging molly was huge but there was another band at that time i feel like that put out a record that was also pretty big and they were doing the warp tour comps
1: they were doing the warp tour comps because i know that kevin lyman was uh, pretty close with joe sib who was the guy that kind of yep. got that label going you know
2: yeah yeah it's joe joe sib and uh, what's the other guy's name It doesn't matter, but there's two, two main guys. Joseph was more of the, uh, Oh, thanks, babe. (laughs) It's been a while. Uh, more of the talk. She brought me a beer out in the field. It's very nice. Um, so yeah, Joseph was more of the talker. What's the other guy's name? I can see his face, but I can't put a name with it right now. Damn. Oh, well, but yeah, they were friends with our buddy Isaac and Isaac was like, I feel like you guys would fit with them and we went and met them and it just it rolled forward and then i feel like we were probably actually a really annoying band for them because we put out all ears all eyes all the time went on tour for a bit and then we're like oh fuck nobody likes this record what a bummer (laughs) and so that really hurt our morale and then it took us a long time to put out another record we didn't tour all that much i don't know but you know
1: Was it scary actually signing with them? Because you said, you know, with with Big Wheel, you guys didn't really sign a deal. Was it kind of like a weird thing to actually look at a contract and it was almost like more legitimate?
2: No, I I think after the Big Wheel experience, I was happy to do it. I wanted to have things in paper that we agreed on before. Like, I'm not going to do it without a lawyer, but we have Brian Christner and he's fantastic. If I was on my own, that would be scary. But, you know, Brian approved everything. And he is certainly on our side. And I don't think that he has anything but good intentions for us. So I was happy about it because I didn't want another big wheel situation. I wanted the label and us to be held accountable for how many records were pressed or us going on tour to support the record. And I feel like sometimes business and friendship – they they don't, they don't mix and sometimes it ends terribly. Yeah. And so I was happy yeah. to get into an actual business agreement with a label who sets up those sort of things and says, this is what a contract is for. We're not holding our end of the bargain. You're not holding yours. Or, you know, we said we're making this many copies, whatever the case may be. If you talk about it ahead of time, then you talked about it ahead of time and you have a, an agreement even <laughs> Even if it's the band is being abused, which I know has happened over the course of history forever. But I don't think Side 1W was trying to abuse us from the get-go. And like I said, we had Brian to look over it. So I got to be honest, that was a much better way to do things than just not signing anything and, and hoping that friendship will figure out how music industry works. You know, and that's yeah. just not going to happen.
1: Well, yeah it's it's a it's a business. I mean, you always you're not supposed to to mix you know friends with business. So, I mean, even if the music business, I mean, I know it's there's probably been many times where it has worked, but there's been many more times where it hasn't worked.
2: Yes, yes, and yeah, I we've had I guess experiences of both, but I'm sure I know that there are bands in the world that have gotten so much more screwed over or have been I mean we were never really screwed over we just didn't get information that seemed like a label should give to us to make decisions to move forward um but I know bands have gotten so screwed over the years so our we're really lucky and we no one's ever told us how to write a song yeah no one's ever said uh this isn't good enough this isn't uh, you know, I don't like how you guys dress. I don't, you know that. I wanted to avoid that at all costs because music is the most sacred thing. It's the thing that doesn't have any rules. It's the thing that no one can tell me how to how to do it. You can give me your suggestion, but at the end of the day, I'm gonna write the song however I want to because music is that special, you know. And everybody can do exactly what they want with it. Um, and so I, I feel like that, Isaac introducing us to the side one guys that's more what we wanted for a place to to continue to grow or just do whatever we were going to do you know so here we are i wonder <laughs> if we stole the many records
1: <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so the one thing that i always heard about you guys i was never you know fortunate enough to meet you guys i have seen you guys play a couple times but the cool thing that i always heard from other people. And I just remember reading about it is that you guys are one of the first bands that converted your diesel to run off of vegetable oil. Now, was that, I've seen the DVD, I've seen like the the farewell tour thing, and we'll talk about that too. But was that like, was everybody on board right away? Were you guys worried about it breaking down? Like, can you kind of take me through that process?
2: Sure. We had a buddy, his name is Mike Parziel, who was the first person we'd ever known to convert their diesel vehicle to run on vegetable oil and so he said Aaron I'll help you convert the van and so Aaron said yes I'll do it and uh so we didn't really know that much about it but Aaron when he gets into something he's really excitable so he's like guys we will tour for free and you're like well I don't know about that but I it saved us thousands of dollars thousands anyway that being said <clears throat> So Aaron and Mike got a tank. You you basically make a secondary tank that holds the vegetable oil and there's a sock filter in there and you go to, say, places that would have vegetable oil that's on a cleaner end in their waste tank, like a sushi restaurant or... Those were often the best, the sushi restaurants, because tempura can't be, like, brown. Yeah. When it's crispy, you know, so the oil's changed frequently, it's clean. So you go behind a place and we just did bucket brigade and we would bucket it over to the stock filter. You put it in there, but then on the dash, there's a switch that will pull from either the stock diesel tank or the vegetable oil tank. And you'd have to heat the vegetable oil up because it's a little more thicker than diesel fuel is if it's not warmed up. Yeah. So then you know, you turn on the van and it starts on veg- on. Excuse me, it starts on regular diesel. And then drive around, and after five minutes, you just flip the switch on the dash. And you're riding on the vegetable oil tank. And then before you stop, you flip it back over five minutes so it can get back to diesel in the line. Because if it hardens with uh vegetable in line, you're going to be screwed. So you got to make sure you get the diesel back in there. But that's what we did. And we just, it gave us another purpose to tour because you'd be like, okay, you get to the show, you do sound check, and then we'd all be like, grease hunt. <laughs> right. So we just go out, find a place to get dinner grab some sushi while we're getting it, it you'd often too you'd go in there and talk to somebody and say hey can we have your vegetable oil um they say sure and then you finish filling up and you go in there and you, that's where you eat yeah so it, it's like and and it, it just gave us another instead of just sitting around at the club drinking until we play we went out and we got vegetable oil so that the next day we didn't have to fill up on gas it was awesome
1: was, was there anybody that you asked at the restaurants that like didn't get it or they were kind of weirded out by yes. you guys wanting yes. their, their trash?
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. People did not understand. People would say no, and that's fine. Often, too, we'd be, it'd be in the middle of the night when we would go get it, so we wouldn't be asking anybody. We'd just roll. We'd say, oh, look, hey, there's, a, there's a, a Chinese food place. Let's go just check out their oil off the highway. And you just go. After you leave a show and see what's there, and if there's nothing cool, but maybe you get a couple gallons out of it. It was, <laughs> it was cool. It was, it was freeing. You know.
1: So on a, on a tank of vegetable oil, you know, not including the warm up and the 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 getting it out of the line at the end, how many miles could you guys go on a tank?
2: It's it's equivalent. Our tank was really big, so I, I mean, our tank was much bigger than the stock tank. So it's dependent on the tank, but I feel like. Per volume, you get the same from vegetable oil as you do for diesel. But I don't really scientifically know that, so I wouldn't quote me on that. But I do believe it's probably about equal.
1: So was that a thing that you guys continued to do, like in the future, until the whole like the hiatus thing?
2: Yeah, until about 2008, we were doing that. The the, up until the end, and then those last shows. I think we got rented a little RV thing, but. Yeah, I mean from like 2004 to 2007 it was really only 3 3 years but we did go on a lot of vegetable oil tours in those 3 years so yeah, it was really it's pretty cool. I don't I think new diesels are a lot more um robotic like they have a lot more digital stuff and computer things so I think it's a little bit harder to do it now. But I'm sure it's there's still probably a way. I I know that I think Aaron and Mike have both... Jake would probably both be able to do that to somebody's car, but I know that the desire for it has gone down a lot, it seems.
1: Well, you guys disrupted the diesel industry. They saw what you were doing, and they made it harder to do, right?
2: (laughs) That is probably part of it. I mean, the diesel engine was originally supposed to run on peanut oil, but it just didn't work out that way, so... Uh, here we are. You know, fossil fuels. But I, I guess maybe that's part of it. That seems really that's flattering. That (laughs) diesel industry was like, we can't, we can't let people follow this lead. Yeah, you know, we don't want this to happen with others.
1: Well, I remember so, seeing a lot of press about it, man, because, you know, being plugged into the whole independent music scene when that was all going on, like it was everywhere. Did, did that even help you guys maybe get a little bit more interest in the band because of doing something like that?
2: Yeah, I remember uh, MTV contact, contacted us to do a little short there. And I remember Mike was Mike and Aaron were in it and we filmed something at, uh, oh God, what's the place in Orange County? Uh, anyway, Chain Reaction. We filmed something there. Filmed something at Chain Reaction with MTV. And I mean, even those kind of things, little blips they play on MTV that even mentioned our band name. I think that helped us Yeah. a little bit. Even if I can't put like a number on how many people came to our shows because they saw a commercial on MTV. But clearly, the more you talk about a band in public, the the more that people are going to be interested or at least intrigued enough to go see them or listen to an album, you know? So I do think all those things helped. And I think the vegetable oil thing did too because it just created more either curiosity or like, uh, like, oh, I want to find out about vegetable oil. Like Aaron would almost give like a little class in the parking lot every night of the tour, just talking to people about it. Wow. so it was something that people were curious about you yeah. know.
1: so we were talking about you were talking about uh, the farewell tour in 2007-2008 around that time what made you guys decide to kind of hang up the touring shoes and, and kind of you know do other stuff did you just feel like the band had run its course
2: yeah we we I, I think we had just hit the end of what we were going to do at that time and I feel like Everybody had things in their life that were uh, t- kind of taking over their time, which is totally fine and I get it, but I felt like I was pulling all the weight, you know, and I, I it was I, I really need other people to help me make a band function and it was, the end there was like 2007 and 8 was really like pulling teeth, you know. It was just hard to get everybody on the same page, hard to get us together, hard to decide on anything nobody wanted to really play shows we needed to just get away from it for a while and so we did yeah
1: so you guys decided though you reunited at bamboozle on the west coast in 2010 and then you did a reunion tour in 2016 you played riot fest in 2018 you just did this christmas seven inch is it safe to say you guys are back and fairly active. I mean, what's like? Yeah, I,
2: I I would say that at this point we've had the last four years. Actually, we've played shows all of them, um, and we are slated to even play the Furnace Fest this year if it happens at the end of uh, September. But yeah, I mean, I think all of us are really busy. We are seemingly. T- it's going to be hard for us to do this, but I hope we get to put out another record because I think now. We are, we've distanced ourselves from it, but also I think I have enough wherewithal and maybe all of us do that we can look back on the past fondly instead of angrily in some ways. And I, I've been saying this to Aaron over and over again. I'm like, dude, I'm trying to go backwards to go forwards in my songwriting. Like what would 23 year old Travis want to write on guitar? Cause 20, 43 year old Travis doesn't even care about picking it up half the time. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to stir things in myself that I remember from the past, which was just small things that inspired you. So trying to go back to that and be like, I don't, I don't, I'm just trying to refresh by going backwards in a way. That's my new move. So, uh, I hope it works in a weird way, but I'm not even sure what it means exactly, but I have a new appreciation, I suppose, for, All the stuff we did, even if it has a lot of mistakes within all of its years, it still had a lot of good stuff, too. And we're all friends still. And that's amazing, too. I mean, it doesn't happen with everybody. So
1: So Uh, what was that uh, like the thing that made you guys decide in 2010 to do that first kind of reunion show at Bamboozle and then continue on? Like, were you guys just missing each other? Were you doing other music like in the meantime?
2: Yeah, Aaron was in a band called Roll the Tanks. I played with the past haunts. Um, I don't know. And it, it, I don't feel like it, it wasn't when we did Bamboozle, then we took like another six years off before we really did something else. So Bamboozle feels like a flash in the pan. And I feel like we really didn't do much from the last shows in 2008 till 2016. And then I feel like that's when we are, have now been active again. I, I think the bamboozles. I don't even really. I mean, yes, we played them, but they weren't like. After that, it was over. We didn't even think about writing new songs. We just went our separate ways, and everybody's like, "Oh, cool, we played friends from start to finish on the West Coast and the East Coast." It wasn't a, a, a decided effort to like try to play together and create new songs. It was just a, kind of a one-off. And now, since 2016, I think we're just realizing or have been realizing that people do really appreciate the band, that people care, that, uh, that we enjoy playing kind of together more than we have in a long time. And that in, in that we're like better at songs than we have been too. So here we are playing songs from, you know, friends and we're like, man, we's we're playing them better than we ever have. That's possibly a signal to like, maybe we should try to write some new songs. So that's yeah. what we've been doing. And I don't know what'll happen, but we have been writing them.
1: Where Where did the idea come from for this, the Christmas release?
2: Well, Luke had the initial idea, but I think it was a way for us to just kind of open the door to writing new songs because it's a way where it doesn't have to be really a piebald song. Yeah, It's just a Christmas song. So maybe, I think it helped take the pressure off a little bit of it being like, okay, piebald's releasing new music. Let's judge it. And that's what I think everybody's going to do, even though that's probably kind of weirdly incorrect, but I guess that's what you do as a musician. That being said, I think it was... Luke's way of being like, well, not only would we do, we have been known for our Christmas shows. We're going to play some this year. Let's try to smash some Christmas songs. But I do think it was also a, like a door opener for making new music.
1: What was the process like for choosing the songs? Did you guys each like get a vote or something?
2: For the Christmas EP? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, no, we just kind of wrote a few songs and Aaron had one that Rebellion of Winter song, and then Luke had an idea, like, hey, what, what do you want for Christmas? He's like, all we want is to rage with our friends. And I was like, that's the song. Yeah. So then I just went, I rolled with it from there, and I had the, the riff from the, the Do Good Stuff song in my head for a long time, and I never knew what to do with it. And I was like, wouldn't it be funny if there's a song about Santa, but it's kind of metal? <laughs> and so... That's what happened.
1: Yeah, I just I just wondered if like everybody in the band was like, oh, I wrote a Christmas song. I wrote a Christmas song, or if it was still the old way.
2: Yeah, no, it was still kind of the old way. Like I brought the two the two songs I had. I was like, I think these need a little bit more, but here's basic ideas. Here's basic. Here's a verse and a chorus, or here's this thought. And I remember sending them demos actually, um, but. Uh, yeah, it kind of happened the same way it always does. Aaron had his song, though, and then we just kind of came in and put our flourishes on top, but pretty much the same stuff. Have a couple parts, bring them to everybody else.
1: <laughs> so, you know, we're getting close to the hour here, and that's where I like to cap these things. I would like to know, were there any plans this past year that kind of got squashed due to the pandemic for you guys? Other than Furnace uh, Fest the first yeah. time, of course.
2: Yeah, that, that was supposed to be in May. Um, yeah, we were supposed to play... God, what's the place called? It's it's in Pennsylvania. Oh, the Chameleon like Club. Their, you guys
1: were supposed to do that last like, year, yeah. Yes,
2: we were supposed to play... Yes, uh, that was supposed to happen. And that got pushed... I remember that was supposed to be like M- May or something. And then it was supposed to be July. And then it was supposed to be September. And then I think it just got canceled. But that was really the only thing. And... I assume that Piebald in general probably would have gotten together to just be creative and and just play some music somewhere in there. But nothing major was taken off the table for us, and we're really lucky that we got to play those shows with Dashboard at the beginning of the year. We snuck it right in before everything fell apart. So,
1: So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the future then. You said that you're optimistic about maybe a new Piebald record. Has any of that started yet, or are you guys still just maybe talking about it?
2: Oh uh, no, we've been making demos um, the past couple years now. We have quite a few songs, more than an album's worth of songs. But I, I want to have like more than two albums, and then whittle it down and be like, okay, we're recording like these fourteen, and we're gonna whittle it down to eleven or twelve, and then hopefully the choice is really hard because we love all the songs and have already done the whittling, but yes, I, I hope that uh, we put out another album and yeah, the songwriting has definitely already started.
1: Do you guys think that you will maybe go with a label or are you going to do the self-release stuff since it is, you know, this new era where you can get distro kid and you can just put it up on your, like, what do you guys think you'll do for that?
2: I think I I personally would like to find a label and for many reasons because it's time for us too to repress like Big Wheel catalog because that stuff hasn't seen the light of day except in digital for years really and I I think it's time for those the Big Wheel releases to be repressed um but that being said In doing that, I I would love to find a label that's like, yes, we want to put out a new piebald record. And we also want to repress these old records of yours because, you know, we own the rights to them, all the stuff that was on Big Wheel. And that's what I'm hoping for, a label that's kind of a home for our old records. And then they also want to help us to put out a new release. That would be my ideal thing. I don't know who that is, but that would, I think a label's power would be better than us just doing it ourselves.
1: So other than Furnace Fest, you know, fingers crossed it's going to happen. Any other shows, big festivals, anything you guys have talked about?
2: That is it right now. Uh, I feel like talk of things like that got kind of just put aside currently. You know, even the Furnace Fest is still a shot in the dark, really. Like, will it happen? I don't know. I hope so. That would be awesome. The lineup's killer, man. The lineup is incredible. Yeah um i really hope it does but i also understand if it doesn't and i and i hope that we all can do that um but as of right now i my plan um at least for like this spring is i'm heading back up to mass at the end of april to get together with the dudes and and just work on some demos that we've been working on this past year that we've just sent to each other, but now we can work on them in real life yeah. and play them together and make the, make some changes and try to track some really rough demos and, and just kick around some songs for a, a long weekend. So that is the plan. And by that time at the end of April, I'll be fully vaxxed and so will everybody else. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, that's, that's the next step. is just get together and keep hashing out some songs and, figuring it out but yeah hopefully hopefully we will all be high-fiving at Furnace Fest <laughs> <laughs>
1: that, that'd be great man so uh is there anything else you'd like to plug or tell my listeners before we get out of here
2: no uh, just uh thanks for listening to and and appreciating piebald all these years
1: awesome man how can people find you, how, how can people find you guys online
2: um i believe it's just piebald.com and then if from there, if you're looking for like a T-shirt or stuff, we are now on Hello Merch, um, and so you can just go to their website. I don't know what they have because we literally ended that dashboard tour. Everybody went home, and I think Luke kept all the shirts that were left over in his basement, and I don't think they went back there to be sold. But hopefully, in the future, we'll be getting more things together, whether it's re-releases, new shirts, and stuff. But Highball.com and then yeah, Hello Merch has some of our merchandise for sale.
1: Awesome, man. Well, I I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Like I said, I've been listening for a long time. And uh, you know, shout out to Dana for hooking it up. And uh, if you guys have something in the future, like a new record or whatever, you want to come back and talk about it, please do, okay? All right. Sounds great, Chris. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon, man. Have a great time down there in Louisiana. Yes, I will. You take (laughs) it easy. Happy Easter. Yes, happy Easter, man. See you. Bye. Bye. So there it was, my conversation with Travis Shettle from Piebald, I had such a blast talking with Travis and uh, I'm stoked to hear some new pieball stuff in the near future. He told me during the conversation that at the end of the month, he was going to Massachusetts to write and demo with the guys. And according to his socials, that is happening right now as I'm recording this outro, really, really excited to hear some new stuff. So Travis, if you're listening, thank you so much for your time, man. And I hope you and the guys are having a great time writing some tasty new pieball jams. Can't wait to hear it. Also, shout out to Dana for connecting me with Travis and for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check out his podcast, the two-week notice podcast, wherever you consume your pods. That is it for this week. I appreciate you spending so much time with me every week. Make sure to follow us on the socials at podcast. Check out my new band. Yes, I'm going to say it again. Fire sale. We have a new single called Dark Hearts. It's streaming everywhere now. You can follow us on the socials at fire sale is a band or you can check out fire sale is a dot com. If you need to get in touch with me, it's super easy totot podcast at Gmail dot com. Uh, or all of the links for all of this is on our shiny, bright, brand new website, TOTOTpodcast.com. Make sure to grab some merch while you're there. It's the best way to support the show. So before I jump out of here, I'm going to play some music. It was a hard choice as uh, I like a lot of piebald songs, but I decided to go with my favorite piebald song, American Hearts. I know it's like their biggest song But it's so good. You just, you know, I'm going to play my favorite one. That's the song that kind of got me going down the piebald rabbit hole. So, uh, yeah, American Hearts. It's pretty awesome. I love it. And hopefully you will as well. Make sure to tune in next week. I guess you don't tune in. Make sure to subscribe or whatever so your phone tells you what to listen to. But, uh, yeah, make sure to tune in next week when my guest will be filmmaker Writer, director, extraordinaire, Mr. Rich Wilkes. Rich has been involved with so many great movies, including Airheads. I mean, come on. Have you, you guys have seen Airheads. You're my age. or a little bit younger. You know, it's uh, who would win in a fight, Lemmy or God. Trick question, Lemmy is God. You know what Airheads is. He also uh, was involved with The Stoned Age, The Dirt, that Motley Crue movie. He wrote that movie on Netflix. The Motley Crew movie. It took 17 years to get made. He's the dude responsible for that. Glory Days, great punk rock movie, and, and so many more. Even back in 1999, he directed Fear of a Punk Planet. If you don't know what Fear of a Punk Planet is, you need to YouTube it. I guarantee if you're an avid listener to this show, you will love it. Uh, we also talk about all, just so much cool stuff. He has a new Documentary. It's not new. It's from 2006, but it finally is available. If you have Amazon Prime, check out Rich's documentary Punk Like Me. It's awesome. We talk about it a lot. So do your homework. But that's it for me. Here it is. I'm going to play American Hearts by Piebald. Thanks again, Travis, for coming on the show. And thanks again, Dana, for hooking it up. I love you guys and gals. Remember to wash your hands and wear your masks. Be kind to one another. I'll see you next week with Rich. As always, this is your favorite or top five favorite podcast hosts named Chris. Maybe Chris Demakes is your first favorite. I don't know. Maybe I'm in there somewhere. <laughs> this is Chris. I'll talk to you guys next week. Peace. Hey,
0: you're part of it! 10 bucks a pop, and he says to me, hey, you're part of it.
1: Lars Fredrickson from Rancid. This is Mark O'Connell from Taking Back Sunday. This is
2: Tom from MXPX.
1: Hey, this is Jay Bentley from Bad Religion. This is Vinnie from Less Than Jake. This is Travis from Coe
0: Cambria. This is Chris Number Two for the band Anti-Flag. Hey, this is Ricky Rocket from Poison. This is Pete Parada from The Offspring. Hey, this is Zach Blair from Rise Against. Hey, this is Eddie from the band Thrice. Hi, this is Frank Turner. Hey, this is Jim from Pennywise. Hey, this is Eric Smelly, the drummer of No Effects. Hi, this is Bill from and More. Hey, this is Chris from Propaganda. Hi,
1: this is Rory from No Use For Name. Hi, this is Ben Gillies from Silverchair. This is Stefan from Descendants, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour with Chris Swinney.
0: Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Luperton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like The Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolf Peck, Keb Mo', Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more.